All right, Psalm 25 is where we pick up in our journey through the book of Psalms together this evening. We come to another Psalm of David, and it appears from this Psalm that uh, some connection to this Psalm was a time when David had erred or failed in his life, it seems to some degree. We're not exactly certain when that may have been. There certainly were numerous occasions in David's life that we have record of in Scripture where David made some pretty grievous errors and mistakes that the Word of God records for us, and there were times of great consequence and um, difficulty that David went through because of those sinful failures and mistakes. But yet David being a person just like you and I, David lived with the continual reality, if it wasn't the grievous things like uh, you know, some of the major areas where he made mistakes nationally, numbering the people and the plague coming upon the nation from his mistake as a leader or the time of, of course, the events of David and Bathsheba. I mean, obviously, these are some of the glaring things we think about. But David was a person just like you and I with a sinful nature. And so he lived with that constant awareness of his own shortcomings and his mistakes and his failures. And so David, from time to time, uh, we find him expressing these things and kind of in a, a penitent way, making a psalm of confession and expressing his uh, concern over his own failures and pleading with God for just mercy and that the Lord would help him in the midst of those seasons when he knew he had failed and sinned in some way against the Lord. And it seems Psalm 25 kind of has that backdrop uh, of a time when David had made some mistakes and was dealing with a little bit of guilt over that and guilt can be a healthy motivator if it leads us to turn to the Lord and get things right in our life. Uh, but guilt can also be something that's a major contributor to condemnation and self-pity and something the devil can really use as a, a tool in our life to really drive us into a place that's a really dark hole and not good. And we have to be able to differentiate between those two and, and be careful uh, that healthy guilt, which promotes us to right relationship with God, never crosses a line where the devil begins to then manipulate us in our mind and our emotions. And we kind of go to this dark place of self-pity and condemnation because our guilt has taken us to a, a place that's not proper and healthy. So David begins this psalm by telling us in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And, of course, the soul always speaks of the inward life, the mind, the will the emotions, the, the inward life. And he says, Lord, I, I lift up my inward life to you, O my God, and I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed and let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one, he says again, who waits on you, the idea is expectantly, those who are hoping in you, Lord, trusting in you, let not those be ashamed who deal treacherously, or let those, excuse me, be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. So uh, again, David here looking to the Lord, which is the right thing to do when we have failed in any way. The place to look is not necessarily to over-focus inwardly. Certainly it's good and time to do a little self-examination and inventory, and, and that's a, a something that we should do from time to time. But the problem becomes spiritually when then we get too inwardly focused and we begin to fixate too much on the way that we're feeling inside, whether it's guilty or condemned or just you know full of regret or remorse. We're just beginning to focus too much on how great of a failure we are and all of our shortcomings and the problems we've created now maybe consequentially because of the mistakes that we've made. And David says here in the midst of this time, he says, Lord, to you, I lift up my soul. I'm trusting in you, Lord. Only by looking to you am I not going to be able to live being ashamed. And I love what he says in verse 2 where he, he prays and he asks the Lord, let not my enemies triumph over me. You know, certainly David had his fair share of enemies. He had those who at times were his enemies like Saul and Doeg the Edomite and those who falsely accused David and said things about him. Those who at times would slander David, he had his issues, remember, with his son Absalom and the whole family problem that arose there where his own son turned against him and tried to usurp the throne out from under him. And he dealt with the betrayal of Absalom. And then, of course, even the betrayal of Hithophel, one of his counselors and close friends. And remember, David, we're going to see later in a psalm, says, you know, I could understand if it was my enemy, but, but you, 
my close friend, my companion. In other words, again, David dealing with that betrayal of someone who he thought, I mean, I never would have thought that you, of all people, one of my closest companions would kind of turn the knife in my back and do what you've done. So, so David would deal with these human enemies from time to time. But you know, I think a lot of times what we tend to overlook is a lot of times our enemies uh, are things that tend to be the things that we battle within ourselves. And a lot of times we have inward enemies, you know, the, just the enemies of our own flesh, uh, the, the enemies of our flesh that want to kind of tempt us to pursue this particular area of sin or to be inclined to participate in this wrong activity. And, and you know, we all kind of have these enemies of our soul. The Bible speaks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And these become enemies to our own soul and to the condition of our own soul, being able to walk in a victorious and healthy relationship with God. And I think from time to time, even the enemies that can triumph over us, quite frankly, can even just be our own thoughts sometimes. Sometimes we got to get out of our own heads. And I think sometimes the devil has a, a real way. You know, he knows he has no access to the soul of a child of God. So what does he do? He manipulates the mind because that's sort of his beachfront or his place where he can set up kind of a, you know, a, a, a battleground. And I believe a lot of times that is where a lot of the attack and the assault comes in spiritual warfare to the believer, that it comes in the mind. You'll think how many times the word of God seems to allude to that. The Bible speaks of putting on the helmet of salvation, well, what's the helmet do? It protects your head, right? It protects what's going, and so, again, the helmet of salvation, the Bible tells us in Second Corinthians that we're to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. The idea there literally in the language is that we at times have to recognize there are enemy invaders, it's like enemies entering into a fort and when you find inside of your fort or your fortress these little enemy invaders who came over the wall or under the wall or whatever, when you find them, you've got to capture them and make them obedient to the authority from where they have invaded themselves into that they don't belong at. And sometimes that needs to happen with a thought. We have to take our thoughts captive. You have to capture your thoughts and recognize, wait a minute, these thoughts, though they are real thoughts and I'm struggling with them, they're not right thoughts because they don't align with what it means to live under the authority of Christ or to live for Christ. And so again, whether it's just depression or anxiety or just condemnation or again, any type of thought that would mislead us into walking into a victorious and right relationship with the Lord as we should day by day, sometimes we gotta kind of capture those thoughts and bring them into subjection to the authority of Jesus and what he says in comparison to what those thoughts are telling us. And what sometimes it's a matter of even what he says about us and not believing what those thoughts are telling us, but believing what the Lord says about us as his chosen child and follower. And, and I, I love how David says, Lord, please don't let my enemies, don't let them triumph over me. And you know, sometimes again, those enemies can be our feelings, our thoughts, our struggles with the flesh. And he's praying, Lord, please, I have enemies, but just don't let them have victory. Don't let them triumph over me. I want to triumph over them. And one of the things he does, no doubt probably to kind of help with that, is he continues to pray. Look what he says, verse 4. He says, Lord, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me, notice, your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait. The idea is expectantly, hopefully, I'm expectantly waiting upon you all the day. So he says, Lord... I don't want to walk in my ways. I don't want to walk in the ways of the world. And I certainly don't want to walk in the ways of the devil. And the devil has his own ways. Remember, when Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament, he speaks to Timothy and he speaks about those who have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And he talks to Timothy about seeking to minister to such people that if perhaps God might bring them to repentance. But I always found that interesting that he says, Timothy, Minister to these people, pray for them, reach out to them, reprove them, but, and perhaps God will grant them repentance who the enemy has taken captive to do his will. What does that tell you? We always talk about God's will. The devil has a will for your life too. The devil's will for our life, the Bible says, is to rob, to kill, to destroy. He's a thief. 
He wants to do anything he can to hinder your relationship with Christ, to get into your head, to mess up your emotions, to you know disturb your soul, to rob our peace, to get us to enter into sin and to disobey the Lord. And again, we need to realize we don't want to walk in our ways. We don't want to walk in the ways and the patterns of this world. Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, Paul says. And we also don't want to walk in the ways of the enemy. What we do want to know is understand, Lord, show me your ways. Lord, what are your ways, the way that you want me to live, the paths that you want me to take? And again, he's asking, Lord, educate me. Lord, give me revelation. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. And the way to do this, lead me in your truth. Lord, lead me in the truth that I wouldn't walk in a way of error. And you know what? I think a great thing for us to be praying as well as it pertains to our own lives. You know, sometimes maybe there's some area where we just want God's direction and we we want clarity from the Lord. And I think like David here, we should pray the same thing. You know, maybe tonight you're saying, Lord, I I, I believe I sense the direction you're leading me in, but show me your ways. What what, what does that look like? What's the right way to take And, and teach me, Lord, what's the right path? I don't want to take a path that I think is best. Teach me your paths. Show me your ways. Again, asking to be led by the Lord and that his truth would guide us and teach us. He says, verse six, and remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. So he's going to say, Lord, please don't remember that. Remember here is again with God is is to reflect or to think upon. Again, we're talking about an all-knowing God in the truest sense. It's not like God really has to struggle with forgetting about things. When the Bible says, remember, the idea is, Lord, think upon, reflect upon. So he says, Lord, please reflect upon, O Lord, he says, not my sins, not my weaknesses. But he says, Lord, reflect upon, please, for my sake, your tender mercies. Aren't you glad that God has tender mercies and loving kindnesses for they are from old. In other words, Lord, that has always been what your nature has been like. Continue to be who you are, true to character. And notice verse seven, do not remember. So he says, please reflect on this. And Lord, please don't think upon or reflect upon the sins of my youth. And again, David certainly had his fair share of those, nor my transgressions and again we said before the difference between these biblical words sins speak of missing the mark or uh, misfiring making a mistake and and so again a sin seems to be something more of that on occasion we stumble we may try and do what's right but from time to time we're going to fail in thought in word in deed we're, we may try to do the best we can but because we are all prone to being inclined towards being sinful and evil. It's our, our nature innately from birth. We're going to sin. We're going to err from time to time. And so he says, Lord, you know, please don't remember the sins of my youth. And, and those were things that David could recall. And he says, nor remember my transgressions. And the word transgression speaks of a more severe act of rebellion. Transgression speaks of the line is right there in the sand And the line says, do not cross. And you see the line and you understand, do not cross, do not trespass. And you consciously just step over the line anyway. In other words, it had nothing to do with you just in the moment got caught up and made a mistake or had a shortcoming or missed the mark. Instead, it was a conscious, willful act of rebellion that you clearly knew where the line was. And you said, I don't care. I want to do it anyway. Or or I'm just going to rebel against that anyway. And it speaks more of that willful act of defiance that we can sometimes be guilty of. And he says, Lord, don't remember either. But according to your mercy, Lord, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Verse 8, he then begins to praise God. Good and upright, he says, is the Lord. And I think that's a direct contrast to human beings, right? We, you could fairly say in verse eight, we are bad and crooked. And thankfully, we serve a God who is good and upright. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. So take notice, who are those that God is inclined to provide guidance to? Not those who are proud. Not those who are arrogant and think they have all the answers and don't need help. He says, 
the humble, verse 9, he guides and the humble he teaches in his way. So again, God's looking for that heart of humility where, Lord, I'm fully dependent upon you. I don't know what to do. Again, the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud, right? He resists and works in opposition when our hearts are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he lifts us up in due time and, and he gives to us direction. And how wonderful that that's what God's looking for. God wants to guide us. But many times what God is looking for is that we'd come before him and say, Lord, I just humble myself before you. I don't know what to do. I need your guidance. I want your direction. And the Bible promises here the humble he guides and the humble he teaches his way. And all the paths of the Lord, verse 10, it says, are mercy and truth. Again, notice the balance. God's mercy speaks of his love, his loving kindness, his graciousness, the fact that he's compassionate and he shows restraint. And then the truth of God speaks of his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. And God is both fully merciful and at the same time, fully just and truthful and righteous. And the wonderful thing about God is he doesn't have to compromise one for the other. And the amazing God that he is, he's able to fully honor both his holiness and his love and his compassion at the exact same time. And he says, Lord, all of your paths are perfectly mingled with mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. So he says, verse 11, for your namesake, O Lord, in other words, so that you, you would be honored, so that you would be recognized as being a God of mercy and truth. For your namesake, he says, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You know, from time to time, I think we all can relate to praying something like that when you recognize the greatness of of your own iniquity. And again, there's another term there. That Hebrew term iniquity speaks of literally being bent or crooked. So again, sin is missing the mark. Transgression is direct defiance in a conscious, willful act of disobedience. And iniquity just speaks of being crooked or perverse within. Uh, and again, interesting how David uses all of these as illustrative ways to speak. Lord, I am crooked and I am bent within. There is a bent in me that is just crooked and always going in the wrong direction. And Lord, I, I continually find myself missing the mark and sinning. And though I want to do what's right, I still do what's wrong. And I get so frustrated with myself, Lord, and my weaknesses. I think things I don't want to think, or I say something I wish I wouldn't have said, or, or I do something that I said I was never going to do again. And then he says, if that weren't it, Lord, then there's times where I just flat out transgress when I'm just defiant. And I just get, you know, rebellious in my act of disobedience. And I just kind of willfully cross some line. And so he says, Lord, pardon my iniquity for it is great. Lord, have mercy and forgive me, he's saying. Then verse 12, he says, and who is the man that fears the Lord? And now he speaks of some of the sort of rewards, if you would, or the benefits, the things that God does for the person instead who reverences God and has a humble you know, recognition of God's authority. And so therefore they, they want to be honorable and reverent because they fear the Lord in that healthy way that he's an almighty God. Who is that man that fears the Lord? Him, he says, God, shall teach in the way that he chooses. So again, as we begin to develop a healthy fear of the Lord, we don't want our way, we want God's way. And so when God sees a heart that's inclined that wants to do his will, then God is more prone to begin to teach in the way, notice, that he chooses. And, and I like this aspect of David's heart here. Him, God, shall teach in the way that he chooses because you know I found that the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I recognize the reality of my own depravity and my own weaknesses. You know, I, I thought I was, I don't know about you, I thought I was pretty bad when I first got saved. And I got saved in 1992. So n now we're, what, 2021. And, and I thought I was pretty bad in 1992. Now that I've walked with Jesus all the way till 2021, I realize I'm way worse. <laughs> it's like every day that goes by, every week that goes by, every month that goes by, as you grow in your relationship with the Lord, you actually become more conscious of how truly depraved you are. And I found 
that I felt, it's kind of like I felt the gap was about this big between my depth of sinfulness and the grace and love and compassion of the Lord. And the longer I've been a Christian, all I've realized more is, oh my goodness, I thought the gap was that big. It's way bigger than that. And I'm way more, and again, needy and depraved and messed up and fractured in so many ways. And it just causes you to appreciate more and more that reality. And so because of that, I don't know about you, but I found the longer that I've walked with the Lord, the more I actually, in fear of the Lord and love for the Lord, find myself saying, Lord, you know what? I don't even want to choose anymore. Would you just choose for me, please? You know, I get how many times I, you know, in raising the girls over the years, you know, where that kind of statement would come about as the result of the understanding of the love relationship and just, you know, where sometimes my daughters would just say, Dad, would you just choose for me? Just pick for me. Just pick and tell me what to do. And again, I find myself more and more with the Lord. Lord, would you just teach me in the way that you have chosen? And David says he teaches us in the way that he chooses. Lord, you choose. You know what's best. You just tell me what to do. And your will is so much better than mine. He says, verse 13, he himself shall dwell in prosperity. Again, if if the Lord's teaching us in the way that he chooses, That's going to bring prosperity and success because it's the right way. It's his way. Verse 13, and notice when you do what's right in the sight of the Lord, that blessing even begins to affect, notice, your descendants. He says, and that man's descendants shall inherit the earth. So the blessing of the Lord begins to fall upon the next generation. He says, verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. So the idea here, the secret of the Lord and God showing things to his uh, servants. Notice, those who fear him. And so as we develop closer relationship with the Lord, greater revelation comes from the Lord. And, And as we live in closeness to him and reverence towards him, he begins to reveal things to us, right? I mean, when you share a secret with someone, typically you don't share a secret with someone that you don't feel a degree of comfort and confidence in you as you begin to feel comfortable with someone then you might disclose a secret to them right and so this is the idea there are things that the lord again the bible refers to this term of secret here that is there are things that god wants to share special things unique things and and as god sees us drawing into that closer and closer relationship with him he begins to reveal things to us he begins to show things to us gives us insights and understandings as the result of that drawing and closer relationship with him. David says, verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. So I'm keeping my eyes on you, Lord, to stay out of trouble. He says, verse 16, turn yourself to me, he prays, and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. And I think David means that not just in the physical sense, but even in the spiritual sense. Lord, I am spiritually desolate and I am afflicted in my soul. For the troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction, he says, and my pain, and forgive. All my sins. So again, David was wrestling with things. He says, verse 17, Lord, the troubles of my heart have enlarged. He was having some heart trouble. He was having trouble within, feeling unsettled and troubled. And you know, maybe you can relate to that even now. Maybe recently the troubles of your own heart have been enlarged and you find yourself in the midst of distress. Well, look what David says. He says, Lord, I'm just going to be honest. My heart is troubled. And Lord, I can't get myself out of my own distress. I'm very distressed over this. So Lord, bring me out of my distresses. Again, what's he doing? He's looking to the Lord as his deliverer, as his savior. The same God who can save us eternally is a God who can save us from other things. Remember what David said earlier? Lord, don't let my enemies triumph over me. Lord, there are things that want to conquer me. Please, Lord, don't let these things conquer me. Look, God does not tell us ultimately that that in every situation we're to be delivered out of our circumstances. The Bible doesn't tell us that we're to escape our circumstances. The Bible tells us that we're to be conquerors over our circumstances. In the New Testament, Paul writes in the book of Romans in chapter 8, he says of us as Christians that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, a conqueror is not someone who doesn't have to face 
conflict and challenge and warfare and battles. A conqueror is someone who engages in those things, but they're victorious over them. But there's still the battle to be fought, but they conquer over the situation. And so, again, that's what the Bible tells us to do by faith, by trusting the Lord, by having a right heart attitude, looking to the Lord, that we ultimately would not be conquered, but we would be conquerors over those things. And David's asking for the Lord's help. He says, Lord, bring me out of this distressed condition I'm in mentally and emotionally. He says, please forgive my sins. Again, it seems that this is part of what was troubling David was his own struggles over his sins. And sometimes that can be the case. You know, where I said, we start to just feel self-pity and condemnation and can go to a really dark place sometime in our minds and our emotions. He says, consider verse 19, my enemies, for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in you. And let integrity, he says, and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And then he prays, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So again, he looks beyond himself all the way out to the nation. He says, God, I don't just have my own troubles. Look what he says, verse 22, redeem Israel out of all their troubles. Again, sometimes this is the kind of thing that helps is getting perspective in situations because when we're distressed in our soul, or we're having trouble in our own heart, wrestling with things, a lot of times what we tend to do is we become so hyper-fixated on our own personal struggles that we fail to realize, wait a minute, there are other people that have troubles too, right? And, and sometimes there's something, and I'm always hesitant to use this word, but it just seems to be the right word, therapeutic, about recognizing that when we're struggling that we're not the only one struggling, that there are other people having troubles in different forms and fashions. You know, Peter himself even kind of indicates that very thing, making me think of it even now, where Peter's writing to the suffering Christians in his day under great persecution and difficulty, and they're going through fiery trials, and Peter is saying to them, look, you got to be sober, be vigilant. Your, your adversary, the devil, he's walking around like a roaring lion, but then Peter ultimately begins to, to say this as he wraps up the letter. He says, look, resist him, steadfast in the faith. And then he says this, 1 Peter 5, knowing that the same sufferings experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So, so what does Peter do? I know you're suffering. The whole letter, 1 Peter 5, is about how to deal with suffering. And he says, if you suffer according to the will of God as a Christian, just try, just try and glorify God in the matter. But that's the primary thing to do. Let God teach you things. Try and glorify God through the suffering. Those are the right attitudes. Remember that Christ has suffered. But then as he comes to the end of the letter, he says, also know the same sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood all over the world. Other people are suffering what Peter was saying. And again, interesting how the Holy Spirit kind of helps us in that way sometimes to look outside of ourselves and realize that there are others who are dealing with troubles as well. And a lot of times that's what helps bring us out of our own kind of you know, self-pity world to kind of get beyond that sometimes and begin to move in a better direction. David, as he comes to Psalm 26 now, says, vindicate me, O God. The idea is God... Declare me righteous. I'm being falsely accused. God, prove that my cause is correct. Vindicate me, he says, for I have walked in my integrity. So it seems David was being accused. It seems David was you know, needing for the Lord to come to his side in a particular situation. He's saying, God, I'm, I'm looking to you as my judge. Come and vindicate me. I've, you know that I've walked in my integrity, God, despite what's being said. And he says, and I have trusted in the Lord and I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me, he says. Try my mind and my heart. So David wasn't afraid, again, to, to let God search him from time to time. He says, Lord, examine me. Test me. That is, prove me there. It's the same term that was used as they would test and prove out the quality of metals. They would subject it to the fires the gold, the silver, and, and, and the impurities would rise to the surface. And that's what David's saying. Lord, examine me, prove me, test me out like metal, prove what the value of what's going on. And if there's impurities in me, rid me of these things. Notice he says, test or try my mind and my heart. So again, the mind speaks of the thoughts, the heart speaks of the emotions, the feelings. And David says, Lord, search me, 
If I'm having thoughts that aren't right, if I'm having feelings that are incorrect, search me out, God, examine me. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I love the language of verse four. Now, as David goes on, look what he says. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals. <laughs> what an interesting term. You know, I don't want to hang out with any more of these idolatrous mortals. Nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So what's David speaking about? How he sensed there was a need at time for separation with those who were not honoring and serving God. And so he says, Lord, I have made the decision at time in order to be in right relationship with you. And again, so that my foot doesn't slip and so that I can walk in integrity. He said, in order to be able to do that and stay on the right path. And he says, verse three, in order to be able to walk in your truth, what I've had to do to walk in your truth is I can't hang out with, sit together with, fellowship with, and walk on the same path as those who are walking in error. And that's what he's saying in verse four and five. If I'm gonna walk in your truth, then Lord, the reason I'm able to do that is because I won't sit with idolatrous people who are hypocrites and who hate the assemblies. I begin to hate the assembly of evildoers and I won't sit together with the wicked. And sometimes we have to be willing to detach ourselves from people who are gonna drag us down in a wrong direction. And again, the company that we keep, the Bible teaches, has a great influence upon us. You know, one of the verses that I remember reading, in fact, the, 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 the fall of my freshman year of college, I got saved a month after I graduated high school and had like a radical you know, Damascus Road experience conversion. And I had already had plans to go away to a college in Pennsylvania. And I went away as a brand new, really excited Christian, my, my fall semester. And I was just, you know, ripe and, and knew nothing really whatsoever. But I was just excited about the Lord. But when I first went away my fall semester, I was just trying to, to blend in. And so I was even at time to time hanging out with unbelievers. I would go to these college parties. I wouldn't drink at them. They're like, I'm a Christian. I'd be there witnessing the people. I don't want no beer. I'm a born again Christian. But I was wondering why I was feeling so dry in my soul. And I'm like, well, what is going on? What is, you know, why am I always resting? And ultimately, I, the Lord brought me to that verse that, that spoke about that, you know, if you keep companionship with, with unsafe people, that you know, bad company, the Bible says, corrupts good morals. And ultimately, it took the Lord bringing me to that verse in my Bible reading, bad company corrupts good morals. And I realized, oh, that's what it is. It's the company that I'm keeping. And, and I began to realize, since I've got here on this campus, I'm not really keeping company with Christians. And I'm not fellowshipping with Christians. Again, it's not meaning that we are to detach ourselves from the unsaved world because we're supposed to be a witness, right? We're supposed to represent Christ and we have to interact with the unsaved world. We can't live in a little Christian bubble. But my primary fellowship was hanging out with the company of those who didn't share the same moral values I did. And I was beginning to wonder, why am I being drawn down? And what's the matter with me? And I think sometimes we have to be willing to come to that place. Look, if we're going to hang out with the unsaved, did Jesus hang out with tax collectors, gluttons, prostitutes, sinners? Yeah, but he hung out with them and he influenced them. They didn't influence him. And David here is coming to that place where he said, Lord, I want to walk in your truth. But in order to do that, I have to have some degree of separation. He said, I, I can't be sitting around and hanging out with people who were into idolatrous things and living like hypocrites and, you know, are involved in evil doing and, and doing wicked things. He said, verse six, I will wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim, he says, with a voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. O Lord, he says, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So again, you can see from verses six to eight, David loved to be together with the people of God and to participate in worship and praise. He speaks about being there at the altar of the Lord, proclaiming with the voice of thanksgiving and talking about the wondrous works of God. Because this is what built David up in his spirit. And, and I love how David proclaims in verse 8, 
Lord, I've loved the habitation of your house. He says, Lord, I love to be in the house of God. You know, I hope as a follower of the Lord that that your spirit resonates with that. I hope that you can say, you know what? I don't know if I love so much being out in the world because it's tough, but one place I love to be is in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord. Lord, I love to inhabit the house of God, the place where your glory dwells, where I sense your presence and I'm encouraged. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And just being in the glory and the presence of the Lord as the people of God gather together, he's in our midst. And, you know, as we begin to experience that, like David, Lord, I love to be in your house. Boy, I can certainly relate to that. I hope you can as well. David says, verse 9, do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. And then he describes them. He says, in whose hands is a sinister scheme whose right hand is full of bribes. Imagine that of unconverted people, that in their hand is a sinister scheme, that they're scheming things in sinister ways, that their hand is full of bribes. Again, people bribing for the sake of greed and money to get really what their evil agenda is past. But as for me, David says, in contrast, I will walk in my integrity. I don't want to participate in that dark stuff I don't want to be involved in that. I want to live upright. He said, I want to have integrity. Do what is right, even when no one is looking. Walk in honesty and have integrity. And he says, so redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. The idea is on stable ground. And in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Well, look at Psalm 27. I think we can perhaps take that in before we wrap up our time. And I love Psalm 27. It's a great worshipful psalm. And as David has just referred to being worshipful, he really speaks about it in great detail in Psalm 27. I encourage you, this is a, a favorite of mine and that you just take it and glean over many of the statements that are here in your own personal reading, just beautiful things David declares here. He begins by speaking about just the greatness of the Lord. He says, the Lord, notice, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. You can almost sense the the confidence of David. He says, of whom shall I be afraid? So again, what does David speak about? How the Lord is his light. You know, for you and I, ultimately, we know the Lord is our light because Jesus himself declared in John chapter eight, that though the world is living in darkness, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he said, he who follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That is, the world is a very dark place. But as we walk in closeness with Jesus, we won't wander around in the darkness, not knowing where we're going in our life, purposeless, directionless, making decisions. Again, when you make decisions in the dark, a lot of times they're bad decisions because you can't see where you're going. And you can end up hurting yourself or getting off course. And, And he says, Lord, you're telling me that if I walk with you, I won't walk in darkness, but I'll have the light of life. And so again, if you feel like you're in the darkness from time to time, do you know what the answer to that is? Walk closer to Jesus. Because Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And so David here, he says, Lord, you are my light. I'm not gonna create my own light. I'm not looking for enlightenment. Can somebody enlighten me? He says, I don't need enlightenment. I know the Lord. The Lord is my light, David says, And he's my salvation. He's my deliverer, the one who comes to my aid in situations. And he says, and the Lord is the strength of my life. Again, Lord, you're the strength of my life. And in light of these things that the Lord was his light and his deliverer and his strength, David therefore declares confidently in verse one, whom shall I fear and of whom shall I be afraid? When the Lord is these things for me, I don't fear people, he says. I fear God, but he says, I'm not going to live in fear of other people. When the wicked, he says, verse two, came against me to eat up my flesh to devour him, they stumbled and fell, he says, though an army may camp against me. So again, David reflects on times in the past when the Lord came through and was his deliverer. So he says, when the wicked came against me, that's in the past, he says, God took care of my enemies. 
and God calls them to stumble and fall in their plans. So he's saying, God's been faithful in my past to deal with my enemies and things that came against me to hurt me. And then he says, and I know the Lord will be faithful, therefore, in my present and in my future. He says, for though an army may camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. You see what David does? David reflects on God's past faithfulness in order to have present confidence so that he doesn't get all unsettled and freaked out. David's current faith and confidence in his life was based upon recalling the past times that God had been faithful to him. He says, Lord, in the past, you've always come through for me. In the past, whenever something looked like it was going to conquer me, ruin me, destroy me, Lord, you always came through and you always defeated my enemy for me and you helped me to conquer. And so he says, therefore, in light of that, Lord, you are the God who changes not. Therefore, he declares, though an army may encamp against me and though war may rise up against me, it may happen. He says it may happen, but he says, however, I'm not going to fear. I am going to be confident because I know that my God who helped me in the past will help me in my present and he'll be there to aid me and help me in my future. And look, I just want to say this evening, if you're concerned about something presently, think about what God has done before you previously. Think of all the ways he's worked in the past, the times he's come through, the things he's done. Focus on that. That will instill faith in your heart to deal with the present concerns that you have so that you can be confident rather than overcome with fear. And if you're concerned about, well, what if this? What if that? What, this may happen. What if, look, whatever may happen, even if war may rise up against us or the enemy may come against us, he says, look, we can be confident and not fear because we know the same God who was faithful before will continue to be faithful to us in our future and we can rest in that. David says, verse four, and one thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek. David simplifies spiritual life. One thing, this one thing he says, I, I desire of the Lord and that's what I am going to seek that I may dwell where? In my house. That might be today's version. But David says, I don't have to fear things because the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord takes care of me. Though an army may encamp against me, though wars may rise up against me, David says, I'm gonna be confident. And the one thing I desire of the Lord, I will seek that I may dwell where? In the house of the Lord. I wanna be in the house of the Lord, David said. All the days of my life. I'm with you, David. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord. Not to see the ugliness of the world. Right? There's the difference. You can dwell in your house all the days of your life and watch CNN or Fox News and see the ugliness of the world. Or you can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life and see the beauty of the Lord. See something beautiful and admirable and enjoyable and good as you behold the beauty of the Lord our God and to inquire in his temple to seek God. God, help me. What do you want? God, I'm inquiring. Direct my life. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. The picture here is protection. He shall protect me and preserve me. And set me high upon a rock, the idea is so that I'm not touched by that which would threaten me. And now my head shall be lifted up, David says, above all my enemies around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in this tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. David knew not only that it was important to be in the house of God, to dwell in the house of the Lord, but also to participate in giving worship unto the Lord. And this is what David refers to here. In verse six, notice again, these continual statements of volition. The idea is these are conscious choices. David says, I will offer sacrifices of joy in this tabernacle. Lord, Lord I'm gonna choose to be joyful. I will offer sacrifices of joy. I will sing, he says. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Maybe David didn't feel like doing it, but he says, I, I will. 
I will do it. I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice, no matter what it costs me. And I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises, he says, to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, he says, verse 7, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help, been mine too. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Two things I want you to notice here. How David thanks the Lord as he recognizes who's the initiator and who's the responder. First of all, notice with me in verse eight, he says, Lord, when you said, seek my face, who's given the invitation there spiritually? God. God is, is beckoning David. God is inviting David. David, I want you to come and seek my face. I, David, seek me. Come and seek my face. And David said, in response, my heart said to you responsibly, your face, Lord. Notice again the word, I will seek. See, David's saying, God, I sensed you asking me to come and seek you. I sense you inviting me to come and seek my face in worship, in song, in prayer, in the house of God. But he says, so therefore, when you invited, Lord, I didn't decline the invitation. I said back to the RSVP, I will be there. Lord, you're inviting me to seek your face. What a privilege. What an honor. Lord, you want me to seek you? He says, I responded, Lord, your face I will Seek. You know, I am convinced that spiritual principle is an operation all the time among God's people. I believe that all the time that the spirit of God, the eternal God who changes not, is going forth saying to the people of God, even as David referred to as his experience as a follower of the Lord. I believe the spirit of the Lord is always going forth saying to people, seek my face. Seek my face. Seek me. But then the second part of that is how do we respond to that? Because see, just like you can get an invitation to something and you can RSVP that you're attending or you're declining, the same is true with the Lord. And the Lord puts out the invitation, but it is our responsibility to say, Lord, yes, I will seek your face. And to have that proper response and boy, I, I think that's just such a beautiful thing that David made the right choice. He says, Lord, yep, you're asking me to seek you. I'm taking you up on that invitation. I'll be there, Lord. I'll be there spending time with you in prayer in the morning. I'll be there at the house of God worshiping or at the prayer meeting, wherever, Lord, your face I will seek. I'm coming, Lord, he says. I'm taking the invitation. Great wisdom from David and something that hopefully is our experience more and more to a greater degree as well. And secondly, notice David also testifies to the faithfulness of God, to care for him. Because in verse 10, he says, when my father and mother forsake me. In the verses above, he talked about how God was his help. Lord, don't leave me. Don't forsake me. You've been my help. And then he says, but if my, even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. What's David doing? He's drawing a contrast because typically, right, in a healthy, normalized family experience, the last thing anyone would ever expect a parent to do, a healthy, proper, good parent, is what? To forsake their child, right? I mean, it's amazing the degree of faithfulness and commitment and care of a parent, even when our kids go off the rails, right? I mean, we've all seen that before. I mean, a kid can go way off the rails, and you're thinking, that parent keeps taking care of them. They keep being kind to them. They keep, and they keep giving them chance after chance, right? And because that's parental love, right? Sometimes it's hard for a parent, even when their kid goes way off the rails, to find that balance of, okay, at what point do I draw a line as a parent? And so what David's testifying is to the incredible level of commitment and faithfulness and care and love and dedication of a parent. And he's saying, in contrast to that, he says, even... If a father or mother would forsake their own child, he says, even if my own father or mother would forsake me, he says, the Lord would never do that to me because he's the perfect parent 
He's the perfect father. And look, that's a great encouragement because some have been forsaken by a father or mother or some have been forsaken by their closest family members. But here's the good news. The Lord will take care of you. The Lord will take care of you. And so even if the person who you would never think would forsake you and not help you does, the good news is the faithfulness of God will be there for you. The Lord will take care of you. He will find a way as a heavenly father, as a spiritual husband to take care of you and make sure that you're well cared for. So David, in light of this, says verse 11, he goes back to ask for God's guidance again. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path. I like that much better than a bumpy path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. Lord, don't let them succeed for false witnesses have riven against me and such as breathe out violence. And then David concludes these, this psalm with these great statements worthy of their own meditation. Verse 13 and 14, he says, I would have lost heart unless I had, notice key word, folks, believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord, not in heaven, in the land of the living. Remember what David said in Psalm 23? Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and then I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew that he'd get God's goodness in the house of the Lord, but David said, even now, the goodness and mercy of the Lord follow me in this life. And David says here, you know what? I would have lost heart. And sometimes we can be prone to begin to lose heart. We get discouraged. We start feeling hopeless and helpless, and and we can start to do that. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're starting to lose heart. Maybe you're growing weary in well-doing, or maybe you're just losing heart in some way. Look, the Bible says that David declares, I would have lost heart unless I had believed. What's the key? You got to keep believing. No matter what you see, no matter what's happening circumstantially, no matter what you feel, no matter what the devil is bombarding you with thoughts in your mind, you have to believe. Just keep believing that you will see the goodness of the Lord displayed in the land of the living, meaning now. Keep believing that God can still do something good. That will keep you from losing heart by continuing to trust the goodness of God. And verse 14, David declares... Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, he says. Don't become wearisome. You have courage. Be of good courage. Stay brave. And he shall strengthen what? Your heart. He'll strengthen your heart. Wait, he says, I say, on the Lord. So great, great reminder. Perhaps tonight, that's a word from the Lord for you in your situation. If you're losing heart, you're struggling, look, keep believing. Believe that God loves you. Believe that you're going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And, and don't be impatient. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He'll strengthen your heart to carry on and keep going. Wait on the Lord. I just said to somebody on the phone last evening, I said, look, you can't have a testimony unless you're first tested. I said, what's the first part of the word testimony? Test. I said, and you have to go through the test in order to have a testimony. And that's the part of waiting on the Lord and giving him a chance to work in his good time. Let's stand together. Let's pray.